the strongest daytime signal of any station in St. Louis. We're AM 630 KJSL. Don't forget the best of Tim and Al tomorrow morning between 4 and 8 and Sunday morning between 3 and 6. Prime time for Tim and Al on the weekends. Right now we have Dr. Maury. You can hear him every Sunday night at 9 o'clock here on AM 630. He's always a delight to talk to. Good morning, Dr. Moray. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure and honor. What makes our oneness Pentecostal friends a cult? Well, first of all, you must understand that the word cult is, is a modern word coming from the Latin cultus. In and of itself, it isn't a nasty word, a negative word. It does not imply, for example, that a United Pentecostals or Jehovah's Witnesses or whoever run around killing people or they're nasty or mean. Um, it, the word is used today uh, in apologetics simply to refer to those religious bodies which are in violation of the doctrines of historic Orthodox Christianity as expressed by the great creeds of the Church. So when we talk about the United Pentecostals, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, on down the line, um, this is a reference to their teachings. This is not a statement um, that they are all like Jim Jones, or they run around killing people, things of that nature. So you've got to take the, the animas, you've got to take the, the evil flavor that the popular media uh, uses with the word cult, got to remove that when you are dealing with the issue of apologetics. Now, uh, the United Pentecostals, is, they would just be one of many modalist groups who in terms of their teaching, they openly deny the doctrine of the Trinity and the orthodox understanding of the deity of Christ, the, the Father, the Holy Spirit. So their view of God, their view of salvation, uh, in which they state that the speaking in tongues is essential for salvation. Let me, let me stop you right there. The Holy Spirit thinks of that name. Okay, let me stop you right there, because... A lot of them will point to Mark 16, where Jesus says, These signs shall follow those who believe. They shall lay hands on the sick. They shall recover. They shall speak with new tongues. Isn't it implying from that verse in Mark 16 that believers will speak in tongues? From what well, Jesus one, said? Uh, uh, one, that, that is not part of the original text to begin with. It's an uh, all, it's any more than handling snakes. Mm -hmm. But so it's, it's, an all but, it's an all but two of the manuscripts, right? No. How many manuscripts? Uh, there are three different endings for Mark, okay. and um, none of them uh, would seem to be the original. They're all quite late. But how do you feel about but, the... But, uh, let, me, know, let me just ask you this. How do you feel about the story of uh, the uh, woman being caught in adultery? That wasn't in all the manuscripts. In fact, no, that's the, Mar the Mark 16 manuscript, there's more for that than the woman caught in adultery, and yet we well, don't have any the, problem except for that. Your expression of more for that... You're not counting noses. It isn't a matter of how many manuscripts you can pile up. It has to do with the quality, mm -hmm. the age, the family. There are many areas. But that isn't germane to this issue. Okay. When you're dealing with a religious body whose view of God, man, salvation, Christ, on down the line, um, is in opposition to historic Christianity, and they readily admit this, uh, they're not ashamed of it. They boldly state it. 
then you're dealing with a religious organization that has separated itself from Orthodox Christianity. So the word cult simply means uh, here's a religious organization. It's incorporated. It has a P.O. box number. It has a tax-exempt number. And it is not teaching historically the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is for that reason, uh, in modern times, we use the word cult, meaning that it is a church, a religion, that is not part of historic biblical Christianity. Now, um, for the person who says, now, doesn't the Bible say in Jesus, in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me? I mean, they're looking to Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6 talks about the mighty God, uh, the everlasting Father. Uh, wouldn't it be easy to, to say, okay, it's, it's talking about the same person here. God is, is God. Well, Second Corinthians uh, 11, the Apostle Paul said that the problem he faced in his own day was that people were defining who Jesus was, and there were different interpretations of Jesus. So he said there were other Gospels, other Jesuses, and other spirits, and that there is only one Gospel, one Jesus, and the cults of his time didn't have the right Jesus. So just because a group uses the word Jesus doesn't mean they have the same Jesus. And um, I'm sure Dr. Bernard would tell you that he does not have the Trinitarian Jesus, the Nicene Jesus, uh, in mind when he speaks of Jesus. So it, we're, we're, not, we're not getting into the word game just because you use the same words, God, Jesus, salvation. You define them the same. That's the issue. It's in the definition of the terms, not the use of the term. Uh, that's the issue at hand. I, I guess the, the, the area that I get a little bit confused on is, is my finite mind cannot comprehend the Trinity. We, uh, it'll, I'll understand it when I get to heaven, but, but uh, speaking on, on a fleshly, earthly level, uh, I, I just don't get it. And I, I had a discussion with a UPC pastor years ago, and, uh, and, and his version is that Jesus is God. My version is that Jesus is God. Whether he's within the nature of one God, there are three individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each are God, or God takes the form of Jesus, God takes the form of the Holy Spirit, and God is God, uh, to, to me, that's splitting hairs. Well, it's not the issue of is Jesus divine in his nature, is Jesus the Father, is Jesus the Holy Spirit, uh, is is God to be understood as one eternal divine being uh, who for all eternity has been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. And the issue of incomprehensibility, everybody has to struggle with that. The mere existence of an infinite personal being, creator of heaven and earth, that in and of itself is incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. But the Bible warns us from the very beginning that, that the finite human mind is not going to be able to contain the infinite understanding of God. So the fact that the Trinity is incomprehensible is no more an issue than any of the other attributes of God. They also 
are in, incomprehensible. But that refers to our problem. Well, I guess the, the, the question then that, that I have, to, to boil it down, is we have uh, one God in, in three persons. Mm-hmm. They have one God who comes to uh, to three different modes. It seems to me that we can agree to disagree on that, and, and uh, that... that uh, it almost becomes like the blind man and the elephant, the old uh, the parable we've heard so many times. Well, again, again, you're not talking the same. It's not three modes. You must understand, as, as Dr. Bernard would tell you, you could have 50 modes. God has put on various masks. He has manifested himself in, in other things, be it the pillar by day and the fire by night. So it's not the issue of whether or not God has manifested himself mm-hmm. in different ways. Everybody believes that, Trinitarians included. But God in his essence, in terms of how he's revealed himself in Scripture, for example, when Jesus was challenged by the Jews um, concerning his own testimony, they said, look, uh, you are testifying that what you're saying is true because you say so. He responded, no. By the mouth of two or three separate witnesses, a matter is established. The Father is one witness, and I am the second witness, and therefore what I'm saying is true. So Mm -hmm. here Jesus is saying, by necessity, the Father is a separate witness to what the Son is saying. And that's two witnesses making his preaching valid. And the Father, of course, confirmed uh, what Jesus was doing at the baptism and the Mount of Transfiguration when he said, you know, this is my son, the son that I love. So what you're coming down to is, is a different view of God, a different view of Jesus, a different view of salvation, a different view of nearly ever, of the church, of baptism, of what is the baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues. Um, when a an Orthodox Trinitarian sits down with the United Pentecostal, and there's other oneness groups, the Apostolic Church of Jesus Christ and stuff like that, but when you sit down and each side calmly defines the terms they're using in common, God, Jesus, etc., you will find you're talking about two different religions. All right, now hold on. We've got uh, David Bernard on hold, and right after the news, we're going to uh, to get to him, let him respond to what he's been uh, hearing. And uh, you have a debate with him already on tape. If people want to get a copy of that debate, Dr. Morey, how would they do that? Um, they nearly, uh, they can go to our website, which is faithdefenders.com or bobmoreylive.com. Uh, it's listed there, or they can call 1-800-41-TRUTH and ask for the uh, Jesus-only debate, which is a good example of a calm, rational, gentleman's debate on the issues without any uh, undue emotionalism or nastiness. All right, we'll get to that and more on Mornings with Tim and Al. The salt and light of St. Louis. AM 630 KJSL, St. Louis. It's 9 o'clock. Wonderful day out there. It's going to be hot, but uh, right now it is just right. 72 degrees. 
Mostly sunny to partly cloudy. Look for highs in the mid-80s to middle-90s. Tonight, mostly clear to mostly uh, to partly cloudy. Look for lows in the mid-60s to mid-70s. Tomorrow, Saturday, mostly sunny to partly cloudy. And highs in the 90s. So plenty of sunshine on a zippity doo day. Mm. All right. 72 degrees. We've already established that. Coming up next, we've got uh, Dr. Robert Morey and... Uh, we're going to be giving a little equal time to Dr. David Bernard from the United Pentecostal Church in our oneness discussion right after we find out uh, how your automobile is doing. Uh, it is uh, uh, when, when you have the relics that I drive, you want to make mm. sure that your mechanic is somebody you can trust. Amen. And you can trust Al's Automotive to fix the problem and only the problem. Listen. You know your owner's manual recommends transmission service every 30,000 miles. What you may not know is all transmission services are not equal. Most repair shops only replace about one-third of the transmission fluid, leaving two-thirds of that dirty, gunky fluid in your car. But at Al's Automotive Service Center, Al Bass removes up to 95% of old fluid. It's called the Complete Transmission Transfusion, and it will prolong the life of your car. The Complete Transmission Transfusion. Available now at Al's Automotive Service Center, where you get what you need and nothing else. The uh, transmission a transfusion. There is uh, another red liquid that will be uh, absolutely removed, or at least 95% of it, and uh, new transmission fluid put in. And uh, it's just because of the interest in, in, what is the word? In, Take two. In, see, this is live radio. Take Intricate. Okay. Intricities. Is that the word we're looking for? Is that such a word? It's like when you get to your to your destination, or you arrivinated. I don't know, but uh, but one thing you do know, he's going to take good care of your car, get the maximum amount of fluid out, put brand new fluid in, and you'll be uh, on your way. Give him a call, Al Bast, Al's Automotive Service, three one four eight seven eight thirty six hundred. Once in every lifetime, comes a love like this. Oh, I need you. That's not uh, the one I <laughs> What in the world is that? This is live radio. That's the, right. uh, the young ones or something. Yeah. There we go. Let's cue the announcer. With unlimited budgets, these programs have managed not to entertain you or me. Tim Barron's and Al Gross, comforting the afflicted, afflicting the comfortable on AM 630. KJSL. All right, we have scrapped vitamin C for couples. You'll have to wait to get your vitamins another time. Uh, we're going to spend the whole hour with uh, Dr. David Bernard and Dr. Robert Moray. We'll be opening up the phone lines for our listeners in about uh, 23 minutes. So we'll have you to ask you to hold your calls uh, at least for 15, then you can start lining up. Uh, we heard from Dr. Robert Moray, who can be heard on Sunday nights here on AM 630. Uh, he's also at faithdefenders.com, 1-800-41-TRUTH, if you'd like to get a copy of the debate he's already done with uh, Dr. David Bernard. Dr. David Bernard is uh, pastor of the New Life United Pentecostal Church in Austin, Texas. He's also president of the Urshan School of Theology here in St. Louis. He's been on hold for the past uh, 20 minutes listening to uh, Dr. Morey for 15 of those 20. Delighted to have you, uh, Dr. Bernard. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. By the uh, way, are you related to Jerry Bernard in California? No relation. No okay. relation. All right. Well, you've heard uh, Dr. Morey. The subject is uh, our, our oneness Pentecostal friends in a cult. Uh, your response. How would you respond to Dr. Morey? Well, let me make two comments. First of all, I appreciate Dr. Morey and his approach, and uh, the, I appreciate the station for giving us time. 
but he, he carefully defined the word cult as trying to remove any evil or prejudicial uh, remarks, and I agree with that. But the easiest way to do that is drop the word cult, because no matter how you define it to the general public, it has a very evil connotation. And my second point would be we need to debate Scripture. Now, instead of using labels cult, which are prejudicial, or even historic orthodoxy, if he means something different from Scripture, then I say he's abandoned the basic tenets of uh, Protestantism. If he means Scripture, let's talk about Scripture. And the reason why that's important is, for example, when Martin Luther began to preach justification by faith, the Roman Catholic Church said this is contrary to thousand, a thousand years or more of historic orthodoxy. He said, well, it doesn't matter. Let's go back to Scripture. And that would be the same position that I would say today. Well, can I be, uh, let, let me then just kind of get to, to, instead of using the word cult, let's say this, because we are concerned with people's soul. I guess the question is, does believing in the Trinity, uh, not believing in the Trinity, send you to hell? A lot of people, and I think Dr. Morey would say, if you don't believe in the uh, Trinity, you're going to hell. I would say that. Well, that's a good way to frame the debate, because I would not say that Dr. Morey is a cult. And I would not say automatically that if someone has a different view of the Godhead, that in and of itself is going to send someone to hell. I've found in discussing Trinitarians, there are many, including theologians, who explain it just about like I would, with some differences of terminology, and we find mostly common ground. Then there are others who have a very aberrant view, even by the creeds, but they're called Trinitarian. So again, just the labels are not determinative. I think it's your relationship with God and uh, you're trying to follow the Scripture. That's what makes the difference. All right, Dr. Morey, you've been listening to Dr. Bernard's response to you. How would you respond to him? Well, he's just a nice guy as he always was. How are you doing, Dr. Brother? I'm really Fine. appreciate talking with you. Yeah, I think what we're talking about is when theologians talk on these issues academically, theologically, where we look at Scripture and we're looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and things of that nature, it does get a little rarefied for the average layman. Uh, we can bring it down simply to the issue, uh, if you're baptized in the name of Jesus or baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, does that make any difference in terms of salvation? Um, if someone says that baptism in the name of Jesus is one of the essentials for salvation, or speaking in tongues is essential for salvation, they have set up a standard that, whether they like it or not, is going to exclude an awful lot of people. And while no one can have x-ray vision and judge individuals and say, well, I can't really say whether or not you in particular, let's take Tim Morale, whether or not you're going to make it, that's God who has to judge that. But if I say... Uh, that part of the essentials of salvation as being baptized in the right way, with the right understanding, speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, on down the line, then I have made a statement that in general would exclude most professing Christians uh, throughout history. So if we discuss, for example, biblically speaking, uh, where are we told in the Bible that speaking in tongues is essential for salvation and being baptized in the name of Jesus only is essential for salvation. Where would we find that 
stated specifically? Dr. Bernard? Well, first of all, uh, I do not present the message in the way that you've said. Here's what I present. The Bible tells us that we need to repent of our sins. We need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that constitutes the uh, in Christian initiation, entering into the New Covenant, New Testament salvation. Now, when we go to the Scriptures, we find that the apostles always baptized in Jesus' name. When we go to the Scriptures, we find that when people received the Holy Ghost, they did speak in tongues as the initial sign. That's different from saying, if you're not speaking in tongues, you're going to hell. If you're not baptized in Jesus' name, you're going to hell. I'm just saying, let's go back and conform to the example of the New Testament church. And if you do, then we can see that. If, we, if you don't, then that's between you and God. I'm just trying to rally the church back to the original pattern. Dr. Morey? Well, um, here we have a perfect example. If we're going to talk about specific scripture, for example, take speaking in tongues, the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Very specific question. He was told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he would be saved. Romans 10 talks about confessing Christ, or the gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians 15 in terms of the person and work of Christ, you never find speaking in tongues as one of the things that constitute salvation. That you have various individuals and you have instances where believers, who thus are already Christians, uh, spoke in tongues. That refers to something subsequent to their salvation, not being part of of their salvation. It, it, I would challenge uh, uh, Dr. Bernard, could you present us with one passage which in the context presents speaking in tongues as essential to salvation? Well, here's my point. I don't say speaking in tongues is essential to salvation as if tongues is what saves you. I say being filled with God's Spirit is an essential part of biblical salvation. That's simply what I'm saying. Now, when you go to the examples in the Bible, you do find that speaking in tongues is an initial accompaniment of the Holy Spirit. But we do not regard tongues as the essence of salvation. We're just saying let's receive the experience of the Bible. And yes, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith. There's no other way to receive God's gift other than faith. But we're maintaining that there is an experience with God which constitutes faith. And the Philippian jailer is a good example. That same hour at midnight, he was baptized, and he and all of his household rejoiced. So they had a definite experience with God because they had faith in Jesus Christ. But are you saying, and again, I will take the Philippian jailer since you use that verse, Number one, you can't give me a specific passage. Let's take the book of Romans. I'm sure you would agree that's the passage of full mention where the plan of salvation is laid out. You can't give me a specific passage where the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues as the evidence is part of what constitutes salvation. Uh, where baptized, being baptized 
in the name of Jesus is part of salvation. When Luther, since you brought up Luther, talked about being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he was excluding water baptism or anything else as part of constituting salvation. Can you give me a specific text, and it would really be helpful if you find it in the epistles, where the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues was part of the preaching of the gospel so that it is part of salvation for, for sinners. Yes, I can do that. But first of all, let me say, when Luther spoke of salvation by grace through, grace through faith, he absolutely did say that there is the washing away of sins at water baptism. And this is one of the problems I have with people using historic Orthodox Christianity. It's how their group defines it. Because if you go back to the Nicene Creed, one baptism for the remission of sins. If you go back to Martin Luther, he said baptism was essential to salvation, operated by faith. And you'll find that Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans, many Protestants believe that's literally true. But when we preach that baptism is part of salvation, somebody will come up and say, well, you're a cult because you deny historic Orthodox Christianity, when actually they're the ones that are in the minority. If we're a cult on that basis, then the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther, and various others are a cult. But let's go to Scripture. I will give you a good passage. Acts 2, they were filled with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues. Thousands of believers gathered. Peter preached the first gospel sermon. He preached the death burial, and resurrection of Christ, if you study Acts 2, which is precisely the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He preached exactly that when he got to the climax of his sermon. In verse 37, the, the uh, people cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? So how do we respond to the gospel? He didn't say, well, obviously you've changed your mental belief in the course of my message. You now understand what I'm saying, so everybody just go home, you're saved. No, he said, here's how you respond to this message that I'm preaching. If you really believe it, here's what you're going to do. Verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So there is a positive affirmation. Here is how you respond to the gospel in faith. Well, again, I think it's important you would agree with me that we all recognize that Peter said a lot other things that aren't recorded. These are just summaries. It's almost like a very condensed version. And as you look in the original text, uh, what Peter said in, his, in Luke's summary was if you all, or y'all, it's in the plural, repent, y'all shall receive the Holy Spirit. Then there is a parenthesis. That's why some translations put it in brackets, where it changes from the plural, if you all repent, you will all receive the Holy Spirit. And in that, he changes a different number to the singular. And, in then, and then individually, uh, you should be baptized uh, in reference to the fact that your sins had already been forgiven. And the word ace would have that sense in that passage uh, that the same is in Matthew uh, 3.11 and other places. But that passage does not say speaking in tongues. It does not 
say that water baptism is essential for salvation. Now, uh, the Lutherans can call themselves, but in terms of historical theology, uh, Luther rejected baptismal regeneration. He did not believe in that. Um, Modern-day Lutherans of various denominations have fallen back into that error. But in terms of Luther studies, uh, he clearly rejected baptismal regeneration. But let's, as I said, the Lutherans can call you up and they can dance with you uh, uh, when it comes to that issue. Well, the point I'm making uh, is that if you're going to call us a cult on this basis, you will have to call the majority of Christianity throughout the centuries a cult on that basis. And Luther did say it, baptism was essential to salvation. He didn't speak of baptismal regeneration, neither do I, because I don't believe that you automatically receive the Holy Spirit when you're baptized. I just say that baptism is part of entrance into the New Testament church, but it's by no means all. Now, in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, uh, he, it, it is singular, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So he's actually using that singular to emphasize not just generically, but each individual, you need to do this. Now, ace, baptized for the remission of sins, that means unto. That's the basic definition. Now, you can use another interpretation, but Matthew twenty six twenty eight says that Jesus' blood was shed for many for the remission of sins. Ace, we wouldn't say his blood was shed because people already have their sins taken away, but his blood was shed so that we could receive it. And all I'm saying with baptism is when a person repents and a person is baptized, they're calling on God to wash away their sins. And we believe that that God actually does that when people call on him for that purpose. As far as receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, verse 4 says that when they did receive the Holy Ghost, they spoke in tongues. So these people observed this. Peter, they said, what does this mean? Peter turned around and said, this is what it means, and you can receive it too. So it would be the most logical thing in the world to say, I, I can receive it the same way I just saw it being received. And that would be my point in that passage, that we have to look at the whole context and see what exactly they're talking about. And uh, we can rest assured that they received the same experience as the 120 did a few minutes earlier on the day of Pentecost. Well, again, we're dealing with the historical narrative, and I think you would agree in terms of the genre of literature it's very precarious um, to try to base the, the foundation of your theology on historical narrative when you have other passages, let's say the book of Romans, in which the plan of salvation is specifically addressed and where it, the teaching on salvation is laid out. Um, but again, the fact that I'll take Acts 2, the fact that the people brought all of their possessions, having sold everything, and put the money at the feet of the church leaders, and no one held anything privately, and they all tried to share their things in common, even though that is clearly part of the narrative, even you would agree that that is not essential for salvation. Uh, you do not ask people to sell everything they own and put the money at your feet because you're the pastor. So just because there are things that happened doesn't mean we're supposed to follow that. But take, for example, uh, do you view Trinitarian baptism 
in which someone was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll even say by immersion. We're not, we won't deal with infant baptism. But let's say someone who was a Baptist and was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, would you accept that baptism as a valid baptism, or would you want that person to be baptized according to your understanding in order to receive a valid baptism? Okay, let me try to take the points in order. First of all, I do believe that historical narrative is crucial for understanding doctrine. Most of the Bible is written in historical narrative, and God clearly intended for us to glean lessons from that history. Yes, we study everything in context. We don't sell everything and give to the poor because the very context indicated that that was a temporary custom for specific reasons. And we go later on the New Testament, we find they did not continue that practice. So the New Testament clarifies that point. But that is not presented even in Acts chapter 2 as part of entering into the New Testament church, whereas repentance and water baptism and the infilling of the Holy Spirit is explicitly identified as part of entrance into the New Testament church and obeying the gospel. In that connection, Romans is written to people who already had the experience. So, so yes, Romans and the epistles will give us more theology, but actually they will probably give us less about the actual experience of Christian initiation because their readers had already passed that point. But Romans 6 does highlight uh, the role of water baptism. Romans 8 does highlight the role of receiving the Holy Spirit, so it ties right into the book of Acts. Uh, no question about it. Now, as far as uh, baptismal uh, formula, I believe the scriptural mode of baptism is, as you say, by immersion, you know, as you brought up, and I do believe the scriptural method is in the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I would be much like a Baptist if, if someone had been sprinkled or infant baptized and came to a Baptist church, the Baptist church would say, well, to be scriptural, you need to be baptized in immersion as, as a believer. I would do the same thing, except you need to call on the name of Jesus. And I have scriptural precedent. In Acts 19, there were some people who had already been baptized unto John. Paul explained more about Christ and who he was, and they were baptized a second time, the only difference being having the name of Jesus called over them at their second baptism. So following that precedent, yes, if somebody comes to my church, I would explain that to them and, and offer to rebaptize them. If they refuse, then I just leave that between them and God. So a, a long and roundabout way, the answer is uh, yes, you do not accept Trinitarian baptism. These people would have to be, quote, rebaptized, end quote, well, uh, according to your understanding, in order for it to be part of the process of salvation. This is the sticking point. Well, it's that not a sticking point. your view of baptism becomes part of your gospel message and part of the experience of salvation. Correct? Yes, it becomes part of it, because the Apostle Peter, for one, put it in there, so I can't take it out. How, then, can you believe in justification by faith alone, apart from acts of obedience to command. Hold on right there, Dr. Bernard. We'll let you respond to that. And also, what do you do with uh, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians where he says, I have not come to baptize, but to uh, preach the gospel. We're going to have you deal with that. And Dr. Moore, I want to ask you, uh, 
the uh, the Bible says these things uh, are set for us as examples. If a person in Africa picked up the Bible and they were reading it, and they read in the book of Acts that people were baptized in Jesus' name, if they were baptized in Jesus' name, would they have to be baptized all over again in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? We'll ask you both that. We'll take your calls as well at 969-6300-969-6300. We're having a dialogue between Dr. David Bernard, who is a pastor of New Life United Pentecostal Church in Austin, Texas, and also the president of the Urshan School of Theology in St. Louis. Dr. Morey can be heard Sunday nights at 9 o'clock here on AM 630, also at faithdefenders.com and 1-800-41-TRUTH. That's the number you can call to already get the tape on tape uh, of uh, Dr. Morey and Dr. Bernard. We're going to be replaying this tape tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, between 7 and 8 here on AM 630. We'll continue with your calls and more of Dr. Bernard and Dr. Morey in just a moment. Here's real estate agent Jane Nicoletti. We rehab houses. When we do, we always need carpet and sometimes wood floors. And why she buys at Murphy Carpet. For less than builder's grade carpet, I got like $15, $16 a yard carpet. And then she gave me a Berber carpet instead of a builder's grade for downstairs, all for less money. Because she had it. Now, I wouldn't have known she had it had she not mentioned it to me. And most other carpet companies aren't going to give you that kind of personal service. Save hundreds, even thousands of dollars at Murphy Carpet, 44 and Antire Road. Murphy Carpet, same carpet, lowest price. Uh, same carpet, lowest price. And uh, and you'll find that out when you talk to them. 314-878-3600. 314-878-3600. Give them a call on the KJSL link line. Murphy Carpet. Your American Heritage. The little 12-horsepower engine coughed and sputtered into life on that chill December morning in 1903. The Wright brothers had brought their strange-looking machine down from Dayton, Ohio, and with Brother Orville at the controls, the tiny propeller wickered the air, and as Orville clung on white-knuckled, the little craft left the ground and actually flew for 12 seconds. Later, a one-minute, 300-yard flight was the result and changed the face of the world forever. This has been Don Keyes, sitting in the coach section during our original No Frills flight on your American heritage. Crawford Broadcasting Company and KJSL take this moment in the spirit of thankfulness to remember that as she celebrates her 225th birthday, America is still one nation under God. Shaking the salt, shining the light. 24 hours a day. We're AM 630, KJSL. We'll have Della Reese's address for you a little bit later on. She's celebrating her... 69th birthday today. Sylvester Stallone is celebrating his 55th. While action star Sylvester Stallone was being delivered, the forceps severed a facial nerve, partially paralyzing one side of his face and giving him his famous slant mouth. So keep him in your prayers today. Don't know where he stands with the Lord. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Haven't heard him saying so. We're having a dialogue on oneness. 
are our oneness friends in a cult. And uh, we just asked Dr. David Bernard, who is pastor of the uh, New Life United Pentecostal Church in Austin, Texas, also president of the Urshan School of Theology here in St. Louis, the question in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, I did not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Uh, your opinion of that, uh, Dr. Bernard, uh, isn't it pretty clear there that baptism is separated from the gospel? Uh, no, it's not separated from the gospel at all. If you read the context in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about divisions in the church, some following Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. He's saying, I'm glad I only baptized a few of you, and that was not really my purpose in coming. In other words, it doesn't really matter who baptizes you, and I'm glad that I just only baptized a few, lest that you would get the impression I'm trying to establish a church in my own name. But as far as baptism itself, it was part of the preaching of the gospel. In Galatians 3.27, he says, As many of you are baptized into Christ, are put on Christ. Romans 6, 3-4, you're buried with him in baptism. You've been baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right, 1 First Corinthians, Corinthians 15, 3-4, yes, right. I agree with that. So any church that preaches that message as the basis of salvation, they are proclaiming the gospel. But now, and this ties into the last thing that Dr. Morey said, how do you receive that gospel? He said, do you believe in justification by faith alone? I do believe in the scriptural concept of justification by faith, but I find that you cannot separate faith from obedience to the gospel. Now, there is a life of obedience, which is sanctification, but there is an initial response to the gospel, which is not optional. And I would say, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, this is how you obey the gospel. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 says that Jesus Christ is going to judge all those who know not God and obey not the gospel. All right. Let Dr. Morey, you want to comment on that? Um, yes, I think good to go back originally to the to the issue of definition. Um, your would you? Uh, by the way, uh, Doctor Bernard, um, if we could ever arrange another uh, public dialogue, just the two of us, I would really appreciate it. Maybe at the Erskine uh, uh, School of Theology there uh, in St. Louis, or we could do it in a public format. You'd have to take Dr. Morey to Casey Masterpiece, though. Oh, absolutely. At least once. Uh, or he would know the best place. Last time <laughs> we went out for steak. He okay. Wherever we to go. All right. Okay. But um, I, I think uh, it would be good to have that kind of, of public discussion that's uh, rational, biblical, and attempt to, to deal with these issues. But take the phrase, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you not acknowledge the fact that when Trinitarians speak of Jesus Christ, and when you speak of Jesus Christ, there's a total difference of understanding of the nature of the person we're calling Jesus Christ, so that your understanding of who Jesus is, in terms vis-a-vis -vis the Father and the Holy Spirit, is not my understanding, for example, as a Trinitarian, and that we actually have different Jesuses at this point, different Gospels, different baptisms, and that what we're getting into is the problem of semantics and, and, and definition. Uh, I think you would acknowledge this, would you not? Uh, first of all, let me say I would be open to some kind of public dialogue. We'd have to talk about it. I'd only want to do it if some folks there in St. Louis felt like it would be beneficial. Uh, but going to the heart of your question, I believe 
we worship the same Jesus Christ. I do believe that I have a more clear understanding according to the scriptures. But, for example, when you have faith, I believe you, you would say that you repented of your sins, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. I would accept that. Uh, I would believe that you have repented of your sins, and you, the Jesus that you are worshiping and praying to is the same one uh, that I'm worshiping and praying to. The difference that I would see is Colossians 2.9, in him, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I believe that all of God's fullness, all of God's character, personality, nature, is revealed in the man Christ Jesus, so that he's both God and man at the same time. And I don't see any divisions of essence within the Godhead or distinctions of essential persons within the Godhead. But I do believe that when you pray to Jesus, the same one who listens to you is the same one who listens to me. All right, Dr. Morey, let me ask you that question, then we want to get to our listeners, and you can also respond to what you just heard. But uh, if a person in Africa or South America just picked up the Bible, they had no other teacher than what they read, and they read in the book of Acts, we, we know that Jesus said to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28. But in the book of Acts, it does say that people were baptized in Jesus' name. If the new believer reading the Bible was baptized in Jesus' name, would they have to be rebaptized under the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? These are set as examples to us. How would you respond? Well, number one, again, you're back to historical narrative. There is no baptismal formula that is used per se in the book of Acts. Sometimes that they were baptized by the authority of Jesus, sometimes by the authority of the Lord Jesus. In the name of means by the authority of, on that basis. And he gave authority to baptize in Matthew 28. The, the essence is historical when the early Christians in terms vis-a-vis -vis the Father and the Holy Spirit, is not my understanding, for example, as a Trinitarian, and that we actually have different Jesuses at this point, different Gospels, different baptisms, and that what we're getting into is the problem of semantics and, and, and definition. Uh, I think you would acknowledge this, would you not? First of all, let me say I would be open to some kind of public dialogue. We'd have to talk about it. I'd only want to do it if some folks there in St. Louis felt like it would be beneficial. Uh, but going to the heart of your question, I believe we worship the same Jesus Christ. I do believe that I have a more clear understanding according to the Scriptures. But, for example, when you have faith, I believe you, you would say that you repented of your sins, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would accept that. Uh, I would believe that you have repented of your sins, and you, the Jesus that you are worshiping and praying to is the same one uh, that I'm worshiping and praying to. The difference that I would see is Colossians 2.9, in him, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I believe that all of God's fullness, all of God's character, personality, nature, is revealed in the man Christ Jesus so that he's both God and man at the same time. And I don't see any divisions of essence within the Godhead or distinctions of essential persons within the Godhead. But I do believe that when you pray to Jesus, the same one who listens to you is the same one who listens to me. All right, Dr. Morey, let me ask you that question, then we want to get to our listeners, and you can also respond to what you just heard. 
But uh, if a person in Africa or South America just picked up the Bible, they had no other teacher than what they read, and they read in the book of Acts, we, we know that Jesus said to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28. But in the book of Acts, it does say that people were baptized in Jesus' name. If the new believer reading the Bible was baptized in Jesus' name, would they have to be rebaptized under the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? These are set as examples to us. How would you respond? Well, number one, again, you're back to historical narrative. There is no baptismal formula that is used, per se, in the book of Acts. Sometimes they were baptized by the authority of Jesus, sometimes by the authority of the Lord Jesus. In the name of means by the authority of, on that basis. And he gave authority to baptize in Matthew 28. The, the essence is historical when the early Christians the very first ones to receive the New Testament, read the Bible for the first time. That's why you have the doctrine of the Trinity uh, from the early church. But the same thing, just to go back to the issue of historical narratives and why you have to do a eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Acts 2 does say, and by way of description, that part of their entrance into the church was they sold everything they owned, and set it at the feet of the apostles. Then in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for holding back part of their possessions and pretending they had given it all. So there are many, many little religious groups that depend upon the book of Acts to prove that you've got to sell everything you have and give it to them. And they would argue exactly the same way uh, as the United Pentecostals here are arguing, but more to your point, there is no baptismal formula in the book of Acts. I've offered $100 if anybody can show me a formula, and it isn't there. It isn't liturgical. All right, let's go to Aaron on line two. For, thanks for holding, Aaron. You have Thank a question you. for both guests? Uh, yes. I have a question I'd like for Dr. Moray and Dr. Bernard both to comment on. It's on uh, John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Uh, where Jesus talks about being born of water and spirit, but especially comment upon when Jesus says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. If you could really just comment on uh, on that, please. All right, thank you. Thank you. D- Dr. Uh, Bernard, first. Well, I uh, think that that does describe the uh, experience of entrance into the New Testament church, and it does give an indication that there is going to be a definite experience of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's no coincidence that when the Holy Spirit fell, uh, there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind to signify the availability of the Spirit for this age, and then individuals began to speak in tongues with their personal experience. So it fits very well with uh, John's description. I I do want to follow up, since I didn't get to respond, um, I, I, I would say that selling of possessions is not presented as part of responding to the gospel, and Ananias was um, not judged for withholding possessions, but for lying about it, and 1 Corinthians shows that people were to bring a weekly offering, so clearly by that time it was not a practice to give everything. So I think historically we can trace what is essential to the gospel message as opposed to what was local, temporal, and and customary for a specific time. All right, Dr. Morey? 
Well, in John 3, you have to remember at least two things. Number one, Christian baptism did not exist at that time. Nicodemus was told that whatever Jesus was talking about, he should understand on the basis of his, his understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, number two, born again is a mistranslation. The Greek word anathon means born from above, and it's speaking of the fact uh, that your physical birth is not enough, but you need to have a spiritual regeneration, and this spiritual regeneration comes from above, not according to John 1, 12 and 13. It is not the work of man, the will of man, the, the will of the flesh, but it is strictly of God, cleanses us from our sins. So baptism is actually not in the context at all. Uh, Nicodemus didn't understand it that way. Jesus himself never baptized anybody, and it was explicitly stated that he should have understood what Jesus was talking about on the basis of the Old Testament, which means, of course, no Christian baptism at all is in the passage. Let's go to uh, Fayon from uh, St. Louis. Welcome to Mornings with uh, Tim and Al and Dr. Morey and Dr. Bernard. Yeah, I'm on the cell phone. Uh, my question is, you know, they talked about Matthew 28, and when Jesus said, we call it the Great Commission, he talks about go, and then he says, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son. I want to know, when did, when was that initiated, and and then when was it stopped? If, if you say we got to baptize in Jesus' name, when did the church initiate that, that baptism of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and then when did it stop? When did it become invalid? If he told us to do it, why you know why why should we stop doing it? If that's what Jesus last he gave us as our great commission to do that. So Thank when did it start and when did it when did it stop? All right. Thank you, Fayan, for that call. Go ahead. All right, I think he's probably asking me this, and I would I would like uh, clarification before we finished. Doctor Morey's never answered the question of somebody like me: Do I need to be rebaptized in the titles of the Trinity in order to be saved? But uh, going past that point, I would say the book of Acts records, and it does record a formula. You can say that it doesn't, but um, it consistently uses the name of Jesus. There may be different uh, qualifying phrases such as Lord or Christ, but the name of Jesus is consistent. And uh, your uh, Bowers lexicon will point out this means with the invocation of the name of Jesus. All your respected Greek sources will say yes. The name of Jesus was invoked, Acts twenty two sixteen, calling on the name of the Lord, or calling on his name, actually invoking his name. Now, going to Matthew twenty nineteen, that was written, of course, a number of years after the actual occurrences, and when the, the early believers read the, the text of Matthew twenty eight nineteen, they didn't say, oh, no, we've been doing this wrong all this time, we've got to change. They understood that they were obeying uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, And what I would say there is when it says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, if that was the only scripture in the Bible, we might say, well, we'll just repeat those titles. But in the book of Acts, they understood that the one name that invoked the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost was the name of Jesus. So the real question you should be asking is, since the apostles heard these instructions why didn't they follow them? And I would submit they did follow them because they understood 
they were to invoke the name of Jesus. And so we should simply follow those instructions the same way that the early church followed those instructions. And I will point out, in early church history, there was still baptism in Jesus' name after the Bible. It wasn't until about A.D. 200 that the first mention of the word Trinity was even used. So both in the Bible and the earliest post-biblical accounts, you still have the practice of baptism by invoking the name of Jesus. Dr. Morey? Well, uh, of course, we've gone into church history now, and what you will find uh, in this partway answer, take the Shepherd of Hermas and other early documents well before 200, you will find the phrase, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus, as a reference to, like, in the name of the law, meaning by the authority of, and then the same book later says, and so as they were baptized, they were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the early church understood when the book of Acts talked about as a historical description. There are no quotation marks. Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not a liturgical formula here. When they were baptized in the name of Jesus, it meant they were baptized by the authority of Jesus who said to baptize. And now Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20, this is a matter of Greek grammar, in the name of the Father, definite article before the word Father, then the Greek word Kai, then the Son, so it, again it's a definite article, and then another Kai, the Holy Ghost, it means in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, it is a Greek uh, grammatical technique called ellipsis, so that when you have a series of nouns, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each having a definite article separated by chi, this is a reference to the fact that there are three persons are being addressed in individually, separate from each other. This is just a matter of Greek grammar. Uh, we've got uh, Craig calling to be on with Dr. David Bernard and Robert Morey on Mornings with Tim and Al. Craig, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just want to know, bottom line, what is the formula uh, for liturgical baptism? Is it the formula that Jesus himself instituted in his own words in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20, or is it is it some other form of baptism that was proposed in the book of Acts 2 and 38 uh, by the apostles. Now, I, I don't believe that those two baptisms, uh, uh, those two formulas of baptism are separate from each other. Which interpretation are we to go with? The interpretation of Jesus Christ himself, who actually was proposing the reality of the Trinity when he said in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, or are we to go with the with the one proposed by the apostles. I'm not, I'm not okay. saying that they're underlings of Jesus Christ right, because right. they were filled with his spirit. Okay. But I'm, I'm asking, which one are we to go with? The Good. one that Jesus himself proposed, the founder of this church, uh, the one that we call, the one under whose name we call ourselves right. Christians, okay. right? Which one? Good. All right. Thank you, Craig. Good question. Dr. Bernard? Well, I think that it's a misnomer to say, well, Jesus did this, the apostles did that. Matthew was the one that recorded the words of Jesus, and Peter was standing there listening along with Matthew. Matthew was standing there listening when Peter instructed everyone to be baptized in Jesus' name. So we cannot pit Jesus against the apostles. The book of Acts, you can say it's not a formula, but study your Greek. 
And I can give you quotations. Martin Luther said, the apostles baptized using the name of Jesus. Ulrich Zwingli, the, the, actually the founder of the Reformed, which Dr. Morey is a part of, said, in the book of Acts, it is clear the apostles did not baptize using Matthew twenty-eight nineteen as wording, but they used the name of Jesus. Uh, Karl Barth uh, pointed this out. F.F. F. Bruce, uh, evangelical scholar, recently deceased. So it's not an aberration to say when you study the Greek prepositions and you study the Greek text, it actually means invoking the name of Jesus. There's right. no doubt about that in modern, modern scholarship. All right, we'll take one more call, and Dr. Moore, I'll let you answer the, his question as well. But let's, uh, let's uh, take Dave's last question. Go ahead, Dave. Yes, I'd like to ask, um, basically, from what I understand in the oneness view, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I guess Dr. Bernard would say that the Word that he was talking about was in the thought of the Father, the Son coming down you know, around the year, you know, 4 B.C. or whatever. My question is, I'm from the Reformed persuasion, and I believe that, that God knew me at the beginning of time. He knew that Dave would accept Christ as a Savior. If that's the case, does that mean that I was with God at the beginning in Genesis 2? Go ahead, Dr. Bernard. No, I think there's a difference, because the word refers to God's mind, God, the unexpressed thought of God, which was later expressed in flesh, so God's mind and God's identity has a reality in eternity that obviously we do not have. But uh, So I believe the Word was made flesh is saying God's essence, God's character was revealed in flesh. I don't think that means it had to be a separate person. And one question I've found that really helps focus this, when you get to heaven, are you going to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost sitting side by side as three individual separate persons are you or will you see one god manifested in some way visible to you but you will know him as father son and spirit and i say if you agree with the latter that's essentially the view that i'm i'm trying to propose all right dr morey well trinitarians have never said that the father the son and the holy spirit are three separate men or three separate physical persons so that you can go up and shake the hand of the Holy Spirit and say, Howdy doody. What we are saying is there's one God, and this one eternal, omni attributed being is in three. We use the word persons, granted it's not found in the Bible, but we have the word attributes. Um, and and uh, by the way, uh, Dr. Bernard, did you get the copy? of my book on the Trinity I sent to you? Uh, I don't believe that I did. It's about 600 pages. Well, uh, I do deal with your writings, which I have honored you by doing that. Maybe it went through the Ledoux post office. That would explain a lot. There's a lot of right. stuff we haven't gotten. Well, this is, um, well, uh, it's entitled The Trinity Evidence and Issues. It's about 600 pages, and I do analyze uh, your writings on the Trinity in great detail. And uh, let me ask you one more question. Dr. Mori, do you believe the Oneness Pentecostals are going to heaven? You're asking me, do yeah. I feel that I'm capable of judging each individual case? The answer is no. Someone can be very confused about God, and if they're, if they're trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, uh, they're going to make it. My problem is when Dr. Bernard asked, do I feel that he would have to be rebaptized 
with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a formula in order to be saved, uh, that means he, he's failing to understand. I don't believe baptism, either United Pentecostal way or Trinitarian way, is essential for salvation. My concern is if you're trusting in your baptism, your speaking in tongues, obedience to the elders, Matthew 28 is so appropriate because it says you have to go out and you make disciples. So they go from sinners to saints, from the children of the devil to the children of God. Once they are believers and they are disciples, then you baptize and catechize them. So I baptize people who are saved. They are not baptized in order that they might be saved. Dr. Dr. Bernard, do you believe Trinitarians, if they've trusted Christ to save them and have been baptized in the name of the Jesus, uh, or baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and maybe don't speak in tongues, do you think they're going to heaven? Well, I would have to give much the same answer as Dr. Morey in that I don't think it's my right or privilege to ju- judge somebody's salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that we should trust in tongues or baptism or any other thing for our salvation. We need to trust in Christ. And whether we're saved or lost, bottom line, is going to be based on our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. However, I do think that we need to obey the Scriptures in response as part of our faith. And so if someone deliberately refuses to follow what the Bible says for Christian initiation, then that calls into question their faith. Just as a general principle, I would say the Bible tells us to repent, it the Bible tells us to be baptized. The Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit, and that's what we should do. Um, but each individual is going to have to give account to God, and God will evaluate if that person has responded in faith to their own understanding and to what the Scriptures actually teach. And I'm very content to to leave that side of it with the Lord. I would like to follow up. I know in our previous debate, Dr. Moore, you talked about how that Peter, James, and John were three humans, where we're three persons, but all human, would you still find that a good analogy to say the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are three persons, but they're all God? Well, any metaphor, any uh, illustration has its shortcomings. The word persona, we're left with it like the word attributes. The Bible never, in the Greek or the Hebrew, has the word attributes. But it's theological jargon. We're saddled with it. We can't help it like Trinity. Even United Pentecostal, you're not going to find that in the Bible anywhere. So what we have to do is, is go back to scratch one to Scripture, and that takes, for example, Romans 8 and verse 4. In terms of the grammar of the Greek, God sent his, his Son into the world, which means that Jesus was his Son before he got here. So the preexistence of the Son of God, a second person of the Trinity, is something that can be verified from Romans 8, 4, plus uh, various Old Testament passages. So that the Trinitarian is saying, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as metaphors referring to the relationship sustained within the Godhead itself, is an eternal relationship. The word Father and Son are human terms. Uh, you have children. Do you have a son? Yes. I have one who's turning 20 this month. And we talk about father and son, not that there's a mother hanging around, as the Muslims claim, 
and that the first person of the Trinity is a father in the sense of sexually producing a son with a, 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 a goddess someplace, those are all metaphors. What we're talking about is the relationship within the Trinity of three centers of consciousness, which we can call the Word, which we can call the mind, the Father, the servant, the Master. Many different metaphors can be used, and that theologians understand this. Dr. Uh, Morey, I can see by the old clock on the wall there's a fly. I wanted to get a plug in here for David Bernard's book as we let you plug yours. His is entitled The Oneness of God. It's available from the World of Flame Press in Hazelwood. Yours is entitled The Trinity, Evidence and Issues, available through uh, 1-800-41-TRUTH. This has been very valuable this morning. We really appreciate you both taking the time to be with us. And, again, we'll be replaying this uh, debate, dialogue, uh, between 7 and 8 tomorrow morning here on AM 630 KJSL. And uh, if you'd like a copy of the tape, uh, they've already done a debate. Uh, Dr. Morey and Dr. Bernard, that's 1-800-41-TRUTH. Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. God bless you, sir. You too. And Dr. Morey, Sunday night comes uh, quickly. Uh, We'll be uh, listening to you on Sunday night at 9 o'clock. Yes, and people can call and continue the discussion. All right, very good. Thank you so much. Live for the Lord. Bring them all A's. By the way, here's Della Reese's address. If you'd like to write and share your faith with her, she's 69 a day. She's in touch by an angel. Uh, she's in the Science of Mind uh, yeah. uh, called Post Office Box 2812, Beverly Hills, California, 90210. That's Della Reese, Post Office Box 2812, Beverly Hills, California, 90210. We'll be going witnessing tonight at 10. We'll meet you here at the station. Visit a crack house. We'd appreciate your prayers. Then Al and I will be covering the abortion mill tomorrow in Granite City. Oil of person believes determines what he does. And the ideas expressed on Mornings with Tim and Al are ours and our guests are not those of KGSL, Crawford Broadcasting Company, our sponsors or advertisers. But we all agree that we'll see you this Sunday in... Sunday school. Sunday school. Sunday school. Sunday school. Sunday school is marching on. S-U-N-D-A-Y, S-C-H, double oil. Sunday school is marching on. Veronica there. The salt and light of St. Louis. AM 630 KJSL, St. Louis. It was.